the school is out. Which means it's time for Hi Kids. Hello and welcome. Good afternoon and welcome to the Hi Kids show, a show for kids by kids. Thank you for tuning into 101.9 Hi FM. My name is Ashira Katz and I am your host for today. Coming up on Hi Kids today, I have an amazing and fun things for you. To start off with the show, I will be interviewing Rabbi Katz and today we are going to be talking about Purim. So keep listening to 101.9 Chai FM to find more on why we celebrate Great Purim. Get ready for a very exciting show on Chai Kids today. You're listening to Chai Kids on 101.9 Chai FM. This is Chai Kids for Kids Back. My name is Ashura Katz and I am 10 years old. Good afternoon, Rabbi Katz. A good afternoon and a happy Purim to you and to all your listeners. Thank you. What is Purim? Purim is a festival that we celebrate today, as we said, and it's this great festival celebrating a time long ago when a man called Haman came up with a decree that he wanted to get rid of all the Jews in the whole world and he wanted to do it all in a single day. And the date that he chose was this day. But then, through some incredible twists of fate and some amazing, amazing coincidences and interesting occurrences, the whole plan was overturned, and the two heroes of the story, Mordechai and Esther, were triumphant in making sure that the plan was up. Uh, it was completely overturned. It was completely changed. All the Jews, thank God, survived, and Haman and his family, his sons, were all put to death. And therefore, the, in, the terrible, terrible things that he wanted to do to the whole Jewish people were changed. And if we think about it as Jews, we therefore today have to be grateful that we're alive. We've got to be grateful that we're here and that Jews and Judaism can continue right through to today. Because if Haman had got his way all those years ago, Jewish people wouldn't have existed. Yeah. Wow. So basically what he wanted to do to all of the Jewish people to act to us actually happened to him exactly and there's a principle like that in Torah you know that um, it's a Torah principle that you know they often say I think you're probably familiar with the saying where they say you know like be careful what you ask for you know sometimes when you ask for something bad against somebody else the Torah principle is that if you're wrong and if you don't get it right and if you're making a false accusation whatever you wanted to happen to them actually happens to you. And that's exactly what happened to Haman. Uh, so it's kind of like, um, what's it called? It's called payback. <laughs> yeah, payback. Um, I'm trying to think of the English word. I think the Hebrew word is meged, meda, Keneged, meda. That's right. And it's uh, exactly, it's weighed out. And in Hashem's world, there's justice in the world. So when somebody does something wrong, it may seem like they're not getting... Uh, wrapped over the knuckles or punished for it, but eventually it does happen. Yeah. So what does Purim mean then? So the interesting thing is that the word Purim actually means lottery. You know, when you enter a lottery, when you draw lots, um, or, um, you have some sort of a raffle that is called a Pur. And Pur was Purim because uh, our friend Haman drew lots. He pulled out, I suppose he was using straws. 
You know, in the old days they used to pull straws, and the one who got the long straw got the uh, got either the either the prize or they got the trouble. And he, he used this, the the lottery system in order to be able to determine on which day. It wasn't a matter by him of if the Jewish people would die; it was a matter of when they would die. And he wanted to use a system of a lottery where he drew out a month and he drew out a day and he said, wow, look at it. It came out as the day of the 14th of Adar. That is the day on which these uh, people are going to die. And that was uh, today. That's the Purim story. And he drew those lots. And I guess his whole idea in doing that was to try and show the Jewish people that, look, I didn't decide on which day um, this was going to happen. Mm. Your own God decided. You believe in God, right? And you believe that God is in charge of everything. He decided that this is the day that you're going to die. So it was a bit of a sinister and bad uh, story. But, of course, as we know, the result was good. Yeah. Thank God it was a good result. <laughs> Otherwise, I don't think Chai FM would be here. <laughs> That's right. Not only Chai FM, but all of us sitting around here as well. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody once pointed out, Pointed it out to me. Sometimes it says in the Megillah, Hamelech Hashverosh, and sometimes it says Hashverosh, sometimes it says Hamelech. What does, does that mean anything? So there is a very, very interesting uh, thing here because, um, you know, the one thing that is missing from the Megillah throughout the Megillah is Hashem's name. Hashem's name is not in the Megillah. But we say there's a hint at Hashem's name where it says the word Hamelech. And the word Hamelech, therefore, is the king. Now, who is the king? The king of all kings is God. So sometimes um, when we look at a king of flesh and blood, we take a look at him and we say, wow, he's so powerful. He can do anything. He, he's he got uh, the, uh, the, the ability to put people to death and to allow them to live and to grant them a stay of execution and do all of those wonderful things. But ultimately, is it really that king? Or is it Hashem who's making those decisions? And so the hint at Hashem's name in everything is throughout the Megillah with the word Hamelech. And interestingly enough, there are some Megillot that are written where every column starts, except for the first one, I think, that every column starts with the word Hamelech. And they call it a Hamelech Megillah. At the top of each column, the word Hamelech is written. So they space it in such a way that that can happen. And it's to show us that we might think that things just happen. We might think that it's just that life's just a lottery. We might think, as uh, kids of your age, I guess, always talk about today, things are just random. It's just random, yeah. and nothing is actually random. There's the Hamelech, there's the King of Kings behind it all. So I guess when it just refers to Achashverosh, it's talking about him, and that's when he's doing sort of the simple stuff. When it talks about Hamelech Achashverosh. It's talking about the fact that you think that it was him who was making the decision, but actually it was the Almighty, it was God himself who decided those things. If you actually think about it, um, King Ahasuerus actually sounds like a pretty silly man. He let, he literally gave um, his ring to Haman and said, do whatever you want with it. Well, y- y- <laughs> yes, we can think that he's a pretty silly man, but you know, this is the problem, I guess, and maybe one of the things that we learn from this Purim story is that um, just because people rise to leadership, just before they're, because they're kings or they're supposedly in positions of leadership, doesn't necessarily make them, first of all, highly intelligent. It doesn't mean that they're pretty yeah. brilliant. Sometimes it's luck. And in the olden days, you know, how kings got to power. Well, they just killed everybody else, and then they took over. They became in charge. They weren't known for their brilliance, their intelligence, their deep thinking. 
But that's the one point. The other point is that um, kings can change their minds. Look at the whole Purim story. Yeah. The king, Ahasuerus, is so bent on the destruction of the Jewish people. And then Esther kind of just talks him out of it. And suddenly he's against the other side. It's a big lesson for us. We've got to be it very, very careful lesson. of people in high power and people in government. Because um, ultimately they're going to do really what suits them what suits their political campaign, or what suits their kingship, not necessarily what suits you and me. That's true. It's like whatever I want goes. Correct. And I'm in charge, and I can just make that decision, snapping my fingers, and then people can be put to death. You know, it's, it's a, it's, 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 they talk about it, and I'm sure you've heard the saying that power corrupts. You know, when, when, yeah. when people are powerful, they can also become corrupt quite easily. And uh, we're no strangers to that in our country, right? Yeah, no <laughs> strangers. Is there any connection between Purim and Yom Kippur? There definitely is. In fact, if we take a look at the way that Yom Kippur is referred to in the Torah, it's referred as as Yom Kippurim. And if we translate that carefully, it could mean it's a Yom Kippurim. It's a day like Purim. Now, in the same way as on Yom Kippur, our lives are like in the balance, and we're not sure if who will live and who will die, and if we'll have a good year or we'll have a bad year. So at the time of Purim, the entire Jewish people's lives were in the balance, and they weren't sure if they were going to make it through or not. And so there is a correlation. There's a definite link between Purim and Yom Kippurim. Wow, that's really, really fascinating. I had no idea. <laughs> Why is it so special to Davin on Purim? Why is it so special? Because I think that um, it's a day on which we know that Hashem answered the prayers of the whole Jewish people. It was a day on which things were supposed to be really bad, as we said before, and they were turned around into some things that were really good. Now, when we daven, when we daven to Hashem, we don't always have requests. It's not prayers where we say, God, please send me this, please give me that, I'm waiting for a... Uh, a new item, a new article, or make me successful, and so on. Not necessarily. Our prayers are often praises of God, and we're very often praying hard for the welfare of the Jewish people. We pray for people who are not well. We pray for uh, the welfare of, of, of Israel. We hope that Israel is safe, and all all of those things. And therefore, on a day when we know that things have really, really gone well in the past for the Jewish people, it's what we call an eight ratzon. It's a time when we know that Hashem has answered our prayers, and therefore it's a time that we know that it's good to daven on this day. Our muzzle is good. Our um, um, spiritual well-being is good. And we know that on this day we can pray to Hashem, and we know that He's going to listen and answer our prayers. Wow. That's really fascinating. Somebody, well, like you said earlier, HaMelech like, represents the king. So then when, is, doesn't it say in the Megillah when, um, Esther goes up to the king, doesn't he say, um, um, it says like, Hamelech Achashverosh, like I will give you half my kingdom and it will be yours. Correct. Isn't it interesting that, um, um, the king was so impressed with Esther that, um, he said to her, whatever you will ask me, he's not so stupid. He doesn't yeah. say to her, I'll give you everything. No. So I'll give you half, right? Um, he um, he's diplomatic. He's very he's very calculated and very clever. But, but in that regard, but he does. He says to her, "Listen, 
I'll give you half the king, the kingdom. And you've got to remember that the kingdom of Achashverosh was the whole world. There was no other place that people knew of at that time. It says that he ruled over 127 countries. That's a lot. That was like the whole known world. And when we say there, in the beginning of the Megillah, it says from Hordu to Kush. That's from India to Ethiopia. That was all the way across parts of Europe, down into Africa. It was the only known places at the time. And the Persian Empire, of which Achashverosh was the king, ruled over them all. So he says, I'll give you half of my kingdom. He's not talking about, uh, you know, you'll have a couple of rooms in the palace or I'll give you a, um, a, a rose garden outside where you can have your tea and cake. He's telling her, I'll give you half the world. That's what he's telling her. And um, Esther seizes the moment and she doesn't ask him for half the world. She asks him for nothing. He, she asks him for no money. She doesn't say, I want property and I want countries and please, please give me a place with a sea view. She doesn't say that at all. She says, there's somebody out there who wants to destroy my people. That's all I want. Please see to, the, see to it that that doesn't happen. Yeah, that's amazing. But what she could have also done, maybe, I was actually thinking about it. She could have gotten half the world, and then the Jews <laughs> could have gotten to that half the world, and then they would have been saved. Okay, except, <laughs> except that the Jewish people were everywhere. And yeah. had, she, had she taken the thing of half, half the world, the what half. would have happened in the other half? Um, And uh, we shudder to think the way that Achashverosh would have thought that through. Yeah, that's true. So Esther was one step ahead and very clever in the way that she she put it together. She was very clever. What are the five mitzvahs on Purim? Well, in fact, um, there are usually um, four mitzvahs on Purim. Um, The four mitzvahs on Purim, but I guess your question comes from the fact that there are uh, there are four, but one is really split into two, and that is mitzvah number one is we need to hear the Megillah, but we've got to hear it twice. twice. So we hear it in the night, like we did last night. We hear it today, and if you haven't heard the Megillah yet out there, please make sure you hear the Megillah today before it gets dark. There's still time to chap a Megillah reading at various places around Joburg. Make sure you get to hear the Megillah. So there is the hearing of the Megillah, which is one, but it could be regarded as two. Then there is the idea of giving Mishloach Manot, where we have to give Shalach Monas, as it's known as, two ready-to-eat foods. You've got to give to a friend, a man to a man, a boy to a boy, girl to a girl. You've got to give uh, two ready-to-eat foods. Then there is the mitzvah of Matanot Le'avionim, Matanos Le'avionim, giving tzedakah, giving charity to poor people so that they can eat and provide for themselves. Um, it's a special mitzvah and a special thing to do today. And then the final one is to eat a festive meal. We should have a meal like a Yom Tov meal. At some, some stage today, now there may be people out there who have done that already uh, with breakfast this morning or lunch, um, but the best time, if possible, is to do it late in the afternoon and extend Purim into the night. Oh, that's, that's nice. We actually went at school. The whole idea of it was to do all the five mitzvahs of Purim. To do it together, yes, yeah. and to make it all in one. Um, a lot of people like to do that. It's a wonderful thing to do. Some people don't have the chance, so they don't have the opportunity or the family can't be together. But it's a beautiful thing to celebrate and make sure we take care of all of these mitzvahs in yeah. this day. I also feel like it's a much stronger mitzvah if everybody does it at one time. Absolutely. In fact, you've spotted something very, very important and significant about the hearing of the reading of the Megillah. You know, there were calls 
um, around the world because of what's going on with this uh, uh, coronavirus that people were saying, you know, stay away from public places. You know that this, the, uh, the, the, the Talmud in the law on Purim says that you should much rather be in a place where there are a lot of people rather than hearing the Megillah and doing the mitzvahs in private. So we try and get people together as much as possible, and that's why you had gatherings at your schools, and that's why we have gatherings of reading of the Megillah and doing the mitzvahs at our shuls and um, in places where lots of people can gather together in order to hear them. Oh, well then, a shout-out to everybody who had the prune spirit and did all the five mitzvahs. <laughs> Wonderful. Very good. What is Shoshan Purim? Shushan Purim is a special dispensation, a special allowance was made for the Jews in the capital called Shushan. Shushan was the capital city of Ahasuerus' um, um, kingdom. And in that city called Shushan, um, Ahasuerus, after the story, allowed the Jews of Shushan an extra public holiday. He gave them an extra day to celebrate. And uh, today that is only done in a big city called Jerusalem. So while we did all the mitzvot today, Shushan Purim is celebrated in Yerushalayim, in Jerusalem, and that'll be tomorrow. So tonight and tomorrow, they do all the mitzvot of reading the Megillah and giving Mishloach Manot and all of those things in order to remember that day. But it's the only city in the world today where that is kept. Wow. So in Israel, you could look, you could basically go to Akranana, have Purim today, go to <laughs> Jerusalem and have Purim. You could, but I think I think that it's really reserved for the people who actually live there. Yeah. Um, that they're the ones who celebrate in that way. And today, as I said, with this uh, virus that's going around, they're not letting so many people into those places. So um, I guess more people will be staying in their in their regular place um, in order to celebrate Purim today or in Yerushalayim in Jerusalem tomorrow. That is true. What is the fast of Esther? Well, the fast of Esther was yesterday. It is the fast on which we remember that Esther, remembering and knowing full well that it was Hashem who was in charge of everything, she got everybody together and she got uh, Mordechai to rally all the people in um, within whatever reach he had to fast. Um, and she fasted, and she in fact fasted for three days. Now we're lucky we only have to fast for one, but she in fact fasted for three days before she approached the king. And so, in order to make sure that we understand just how close this all was, and in order to understand that we've got to actually look inwardly and fix up the things that may be wrong within ourselves, we keep a fast day today. Um, well, we, yesterday, but we keep it in this day and age in order to remember Esther and the whole story of why um, this whole salvation came about in the first place. It wasn't because we were cleverer and it wasn't because we had political clout and it wasn't because we paid some people off, but it was because Hashem intervened through our fasting and our doing teshuva. So on that, on that note, let's take a quick song break. You're listening to Hi Kids on 101.9 Hi FM. This is Hi Kids for Kids by Kids. My name is Ashura Katz and I'm 10 years old. Now let me carry on with my questions. Why does it not say in the Megillah that Esther and Mordechai were married? I think it would raise all sorts of um, <clears throat> difficult questions for us if we say that they married and also not everybody agrees that they were married. Um, there are a whole lot of different discussions about their uh, relationship. 
Were they a husband and wife? Was it an uncle and a niece? Were they cousins? What was their actual relationship? If um, we go down the line of the fact that they were married, well, then we have to ask the question about how did Mordechai possibly let his wife get involved in such a situation where she was there officially marrying somebody else. So we could say that Ahasuerosh was such a powerful king that everybody had to listen to him. But we see that Mordechai stood up to the king and to Haman and so on, and uh, surely he could have stood up about that as well. So there are a lot of different interpretations and different discussions about it. Um, so I can't give you a definitive answer to say, well, it's not mentioned for this reason. Okay, fine. <coughs> Somebody also once told me <coughs> that the Megillah was also in Ahasuerus' time. So if he saw that Esther and Malachi were married, he would have killed Mordechai, so he would marry Esther. But would, would Mordechai have, yeah, would Mordechai have allowed his wife to have been taken by the king? Yeah, that is also true. <laughs> <laughs> but then the Purim story also wouldn't have rolled correct, out. Correct. How long did the woman take to get ready to go see the king? Oh, well, that says specifically in the Megillah, and amazingly, I mean, how long do you take, or how long do girls take to get ready to Go out to a party. Um, 10 minutes? 15 mm, minutes? No, no, only at 10 minutes. Fortunately, you're young and you don't have uh, the problems, I guess, of uh, makeup and all sorts of things that, uh, that women usually do. Um, it's a short while, right? But in order yeah. to prepare for the king, amazingly, the Megillah tells us they had to spend a year, one full year, preparing to, to be with the king. Um, and to and to meet up with the king, it says clearly that they spent six months getting all sorts of um, um, oil treatments, and then they spent another six months getting all sorts of herbal treatments and uh, and makeup and all those other things. So it took one year of preparation till they were regarded as being fit to be seen by the king. Could you imagine that? A full year of preparation. I don't even know how Ahasuerus waited that long to see his queen. <laughs> well, it wasn't it wasn't a question of to see his queen. It was the idea of them of them being prepared properly in um, in presenting themselves to the king when he was choosing a queen. So this yeah. was in the choice of who was going to be the queen. One year preparation. Did Esther take a year? Yes, yes. It says clearly that she spent this long time, but she was Esther just had a. Natural beauty and a natural way about her. Oh, fine. So it was kind of like the law you had to spend a year. Correct. If you they were, to yeah, and they were looked after. They were chaperoned. They were looked after by, by um, attendants, and they were taken care of, and they were uh, pampered and done all sorts of stuff in order to get themselves ready for the king. In what year of the, the of the poem story um, did Achashverosh in Achashverosh's reign? Basically, what year of his reign the, did the, the story the, take the place? place yeah. It says it was Bishnash Shlishlamalko. It was in his third year, the third year of his reign. So he was a pretty new king. If we think about it, okay. I think that he probably was ruler over Persia um, and therefore over the world for just under 20 years. Um, and this was in his third year. So it was right towards the beginning. And you know why it happened at that time? Why? Why did it happen at that time was Achashverosh made a calculation. You know, he took a look as his... Advisors also told him that uh, the temple had been destroyed um, about 67, 68 years before that. 
And um, he took a look at the Jewish prophets that had said that if the temple was not rebuilt, or the temple would be rebuilt within 70 years. If it wasn't rebuilt within 70 years, it would never be rebuilt. So he actually calculated from the beginning of his uh, predecessor's onslaughts, and Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple, and he saw that Nebuchadnezzar had started his campaign against Jerusalem. He said, well, the 70 years is up. And he calculated that now 70 years was up, therefore the temple will never be rebuilt, the Beit HaMikdash will never come back. And therefore, he said, let's celebrate. He was having, right at the beginning of the Megillah, he's involved in a big year-long party, this massive festivity yeah. that's taking place. That was to celebrate the fact that Yerushalayim was destroyed. That was to celebrate the overthrow and the downfall of the of the Beit HaMikdash, because he calculated that. And so what did he do? He dressed up in the garments of the Kohen Gadol. He took out all the priestly garments. He took out all the things that were used in the Beit HaMikdash in the temple, and he said, let's celebrate. The temple will never be rebuilt. The Jewish people will never exist with a homeland of their own Again, it's over. Now they are all absorbed into our, into our way of life. So that was what he was celebrating. He'd miscalculated by a couple of years. So he couldn't wait for this party to get started because he was just king for a couple of years. And they said, well, the countdown is on. When are we going to be able to celebrate that the Jews will never rebuild the temple? And he began the party. Wow. And the result of the whole Purim story was that at the end of it all, Permission was granted to the Jews to start rebuilding the temple. So this whole story is, um, has got many layers, and one of them actually is about the destruction and the rebuilding of the Beit HaMikdash as well. Wow, that's... I, I actually can't believe that. So then it must have been such a shock for the Jews that were there because they... because um, they... They had seen like the coin goddle wearing those clothes. Now they're seeing this king wearing him. Absolutely. They so, must have been like, <coughs> so what the, are so we the, doing here? So the point is that, that it seems that in the beginning <coughs> of the Purim story in the Megillah, that they were all involved in the party. They went there. And they shouldn't have been there because that was what it was celebrating. So even though um, I... Maybe Achashverosh had kosher food for them to eat. There are many who say he didn't. But they, they went to the party feeling that they were forced because he was throwing this big party. But what they were celebrating was the down, their own downfall. They were celebrating the downfall of Yerushalayim. They were celebrating the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. So, of course, at first it became a shock. But, you know, with all of these things, um, things are shocking at the, in the beginning. And after that, people get used to it. And they got used to this. And they said, you know what, it's not so bad, and it's not so bad to live in Persia, and it's going to be okay, and everything will be all right. And, you know, they got used to it. And then sometimes people become, they want to be more Persian than the Persians, and they want to become more part of the society around them than uh, than they really should. And that was where they made some terrible mistakes. So is that why they went to the feet? Is that why they went I, to the Absolutely. Feet? So they went along thinking that they were doing the right thing, because they couldn't go against the words of the king, Achashverosh, but they were actually going against the words of the king of kings, God yeah. himself. Yeah. Why was that? Was Vashti really beheaded? Yes, yes. Vashti um, was uh, the, the queen at the time, and yeah. the king asked her or ordered her to uh, appear before him and his drunken friends, and um, she didn't want to do it exactly the way that he said that she should. And so um, this was regarded as disobedience of a woman to her husband. And 
Haman and all the uh, king's king's men who were with him at the time in their uh, celebration. They said, you know, if a woman, if the queen is going to disobey the king, this is going to set a terrible example for all the women in our nation. She must have her head cut off. And so she lost her head. Oh, my gosh. Bit gruesome, isn't it? That is gruesome. So uh, somebody once told me that there was a contract that um, Haman signed on the bottom of Mordechai's shoe. There is a story like that, and they, that uh, they, you know there are there are sev- several really really amazing things if you take a look at the Megillah carefully, and not only is it a document of what happened, but it's a prediction in many ways of what will happen. I mentioned to you before that actually it was the forerunner to the rebuilding of the Beit Hamikdash, but not only that, you know that in the end of the story of, uh, of of the Megillah, there is a fascinating thing that it seems that the sons of Haman were hanged twice. How? What is that all about? They were hanged, and then it says um, Esther comes back to Ahasuerus, and he says to her again, <coughs> listen, we've got rid of them now. What else do you want? And she says, I want them to be hanged. And in fact, the um, much later on, and I don't know if you're familiar with this, but at the time of the Nazis and the Holocaust in 1945, um, there were um, supposed to be um, um, eleven. Um, there were there were there were ten sons of Haman. There were supposed to be eleven Nazis who were hanged at the end of the Nuremberg trials, and in fact, only ten were hanged. And because one of them committed suicide the day before. And so, in fact, we take this or we look at it and we see, and there are hints in the very, very Megillah itself at the fact that there will be a future hanging of people who wanted to destroy the Jewish people as well. And so the whole story here of the of Purim is not just something from way back when. This is something that applies to today, and it certainly will in the future as well. Wow, I had... No idea about that. <laughs> How did Mordechai land up in Persia in the first place? How did he? Well, the same way as all the all the Jewish people um, did at that time. It says that we were we were uh, taken into into exile at the time of uh, the destruction of the temple. So the temple was destroyed um, by Nebuchadnezzar. Um, and Wasn't Nebuchadnezzar Vashti's? Um, Father. Correct. So he destroyed the, the Beit HaMikdash, he destroyed the temple, sent all the Jewish people into exile, and they went into, they went, they were chased out of Israel, and um, they went into, in, 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 into Babylon, as it was known, or Persia, and there Mordechai lived, and Mordechai rose in power. He was um, in the king's government, remember. He wasn't, he was also the head of the Sanhedrin, he was the head of the, of the Jewish court, but at the same time, he had a big, powerful position in the government. And he was powerful in the yes, government. Yes, yes. And so in, in, uh, it's another message of the story of Purim. You know, you can have a man in, the, in, the, in, the, in the, one of the highest positions in the government, a member of the cabinet, so to speak, and you can have the queen, both being Jewish, but um, the kings could still make a, de- a decree to destroy their people. It's... Um, Powerful positions don't uh, don't uh, make you immune from all the terrible things that could go on around you. Yeah. Did Achashverosh and Esther have a child? 
Um, it, uh, there, again, there are different interpretations about it. There are some who say that Achashverosh and Esther never, um, it was never possible for them to have a child, that they didn't live together as a husband and wife. There are some who say that they actually did. But um, I think we go with the one that says that they didn't. Mm-hmm. Okay. Fine. Um, wh- who was Big Son and Zeresh? Uh, it's very, very often people uh, talk about the big son and the little son. Who yeah. The big, who were the big son? There were two people by the name. They, those were their names, big son and Seresh. They happened to be um, guards. I think they were like on security duty outside the king's palace. And Mordechai happened to be sitting at the gate um, of the – or standing at the gate of the palace. And he overheard these two guards talking about plotting. They were plotting to kill the king. They were going to assassinate him. And Mordechai happened to overhear it. And as a good citizen, Mordechai reported it to the authorities. They were arrested. They were found guilty. And they themselves um, met a death penalty as well. But um, Mordechai was never rewarded for um, for this. And in fact, in the middle of this whole story, all of a sudden, the king's dream is his, his sleep is disturbed. And he thinks about what should he do now. And he pulls out a book. Of uh, of chronicles, all the things that have happened in his kingdom, and he flips it open and he opens to the page that says Mordechai reported some time ago that these two guys, Big Son and Seresh, were planning to kill you, and he says, "Hey, one second, we never rewarded him," and then he wakes up in the morning and he, the first person who walks in through the door is a man called Haman, who's coming there to say, "Please kill Mordechai and the Jewish people," and he says, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, before you talk." Let me ask you, what should we do to reward a man who has done, who saved the life of the king? Haman thinks he's talking about him. And he says, take him, put him on a horse and put him on royal clothes and march him through the streets. Why would Haman think it was him? Because he thought he was the most valued and important person in the whole country. And if the king wants to honor somebody, it can only be me that he wants to honor. So he was very vain. He was very full of himself. And he thought that the world revolved around him. And then, surprise, surprise, the king says, okay, so whatever you said there, take Mordechai. And reward him. Can you imagine? He walked in wanting to kill him. Now he's got to walk out into the street and parade. And he says, and you must lead him. He had to lead the horse with Mordechai sitting on it. And he had to shout in front of him. This is what will happen to a man who the king wishes to honor. And he had gone there to kill him. So the whole story is very, very amazing. And Big Son and Seresh play this minor role, but um, a very important role in the whole story of Purim. Okay. Why do we dress up on Purim? We dress up on Purim because the name Esther is, um, well, primarily because the name Esther means hidden. She was hidden. She hid her Jewishness. Her inner beauty was hidden. We talk about the inner part of all people is actually hidden. We look on the outside and we see something and we think that's what they're all about. So you see a pretty face and you think, oh, must be a beautiful person. But once you get to know them, not so nice, right? You see an ugly face. You say, oh. Ugly person. When you get to know them, wonderful people. Now, um, when we talk about Esther, the whole thing was that she was hidden. And on Purim, we also say, you know what, just like her, we've got so much inside of us that is so special and so beautiful and so wonderful. And even though, and, and therefore the outside is not, it's not what you see is what you get. What is on the outside sometimes deceives. What's on the outside sometimes fools you. And we've got to look a little bit deeper. So we wear masks. 
to say, hey, one second, you look at this mask, you might see an ugly face, but you don't know that I'm beautiful underneath. You take a look at this mask, and you might see that I look like um, a princess, but actually, I'm, 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 uh, underneath it all, I'm a simple, down-to-earth kind of a person. So it's like to adjust our attitudes a little bit in the way that we look at other people and that we judge everything in this world. Thank Rabbi Katz for coming in on my show today. And my producer, Senna, and DJ Flo for, push, for pushing all the big red buttons. Join us tomorrow for another, only, for another Chakid show, only on 101.9 High FM. Goodbye, kids, and have a Freda Chapurim.